0: Hey, everybody, want to welcome you to Happy Hour with Pastor Dale. And uh, if you uh, haven't been here before, we're excited to have you here today. Um, Some time ago, um, some years ago, actually, I had envisioned uh, taking an opportunity to invite somebody from the community that uh, comes from the professional world who might be able to address topics that we deal with in this church. And I know that if we deal with them in this church... Uh, There are people outside of this church that deal with them as well. So about once a month, on the first Tuesday of the month, uh, we have tried to have uh, one of these gatherings, and uh, we are going to talk when we do gather about tough topics. Um, but we're going to do so with love and grace. And so I'm so glad that you are here um, this afternoon or this evening. want to welcome those who are watching on live stream and who will be watching in the coming days and weeks. And let's welcome uh, Chuck Bergeson, um, who is here with us. And uh, <clears throat> before uh, we get started, um, we were kind of joking uh, before we went live here that uh, Chuck is a little bit of a celebrity around some in our church. Um, he knows lots of folks uh, in this community and um, has uh, been an important um, resource and tool, I think, from, by the hand of God. Uh, to help people for some years in this community. Chuck currently is a licensed addiction counselor at Southeast Human Services, and uh, I am just thrilled to have you here. So thank you for giving us an hour or so of your time. I'm glad to be here too, Dale. Yeah. So tell us, so I, I told you, told, or told them where you work, but tell us what you would like to, us to know about you first.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, as a professional, I've been working in the field for about 12 years now, um, counseling with all ages, ranges. um, Started with adolescent, outpatient, and uh, today working with what I would consider probably the most challenging and most needed population uh, would be the homeless population, uh, severely severely addicted um, today. So... Uh, i 've enjoyed the work i 've found it to be a a, a real purpose um, that I serve, and uh, i can't imagine doing anything else at this point so i 'm passionate about bringing education to those individuals I work with. I think it 's really important to understand what um, what they 're dealing with what they 're struggling with um, there 's a lot of shame, stigma. Uh, that surrounds addiction, substance use, and I think with some with some good information, some truth, uh, that can be hopefully overcome easier than just i don 't know blindly going about your life and making what we sometimes feel like are just huge mistakes and grave sins so. yeah so for those who don 't know i 'm um, very
0: appreciative of Southeast human services and um, we share a lot of people that we work with um, at here at Lighthouse, mm-hmm. and I, I know a lot of them receive services at Southeast Human Services. And they're going through some changes right now, mm-hmm. but um, we appreciate everything that you and the folks there do for uh, the population that we serve downtown here. So thank you. You're welcome.
1: And it's been really nice to have community support in, in peer supports and, and care, care coordinators in the community because you know the more more hands makes light yeah makes light work yeah lighter work that's for sure yeah yeah so
0: um, Chuck I have heard you I think a couple of times talk about uh, the brain disease of addiction and how the brain works in regards to addiction mm-hmm. and I've been telling our church now for a few weeks to, to come or to watch this because um, when I first heard it it was it was the first time I really understood what um, I was told when I was told that I have uh, a brain disease, a, a mm-hmm. disease of addiction, and uh, it was so helpful for me and it, in fact, even kind of freeing to a degree mm-hmm. um, to understand you know that that what 's going on in me is partly biological mm-hmm. and so um, what we 're going to do something that we haven 't done at happy hour i 'm not going to just sit here and ask a bunch of questions at first. Um, I wanted Chuck, I wanted to give Chuck an opportunity to do a little bit of the talk that I have heard him do, um, and share a little bit about how the brain works, and then we'll ask some questions. So,
1: you ready? Yeah. Okay, so go to it however you want. I'll just back away a little bit here. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, I mean, just the background of addiction is... um, I mean, AA's been around a long time, and before AA, there was just, people just thought it was a demon, it was possession, it was, um, it was being crazy. Can you turn up the mic just a little bit? The, the idea that, um, that people make poor choices and people make good choices and for most people it's not that hard to make a choice that makes sense that uh, that leads to health that leads to happiness so when individuals are using substances and it's causing major destruction in their lives it's really hard for somebody who doesn't understand to say well that doesn't make any sense at all why would you keep doing that and lead you to just trying to draw some conclusions and i think um... how would i say um, common common knowledge doesn't really fit well with this because of our own personal experience. So when, when in 1950 or something like that, the American Medical Association recognized alcoholism as a disease. So it's been since the 1950s that we've seen Well, this is a disease and people are struggling with the disease, but they're still locking people up today for what is a disease Um, because it presents itself in a behavior. A disease like diabetes, does it have behaviors with it? I mean, does this person's blood sugars have them doing something that's terribly dangerous? to their body, to their own body. But when we see individuals using substances, a lot of the unhealthy behaviors start affecting the community around them, the loved ones. And uh, maybe that's the same with diabetes. Mm -hmm. It might be tricky to deal with somebody who's not taking care of their disease very well and watching them kind of suffer from it. And I think that's where families get involved with substance use disorder. We suffer from it. Individuals with substance use disorders suffer from it but the people around them also feel like they're suffering with them. Hmm. They're suffering as a result of their behaviors and actions. So why do people that have substance use disorders make these um, unhealthy choices? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, and I think it's, it's really hard unless you have a substance use disorder to even know what that's like because when a when a regular normal person uses say substances like alcohol which is a central nervous depressant alcohol is supposed to make you tired it's supposed to make you Sick. It's it's actually a poison. The World Health Organization identified a few years ago that it's a Class One carcinogen. <laughs> I don't know why we still uh, you know sell it or consume mm. it, but uh, it's really actually just poison. Um, but here in America, it's it's something that uh, pairs well with your fish or steak, right? <laughs> So it should, make, it should make you slow down, and, and, and individuals, sometimes when they drink alcohol, they get excited. They get ramped up. They get really social and talkative and want to go dance and have a good time. And when you're drinking something that should make you go down and you start going up, well, that's different. That doesn't follow with common sense. Um, So, And the same thing is with individuals who use opiates, like narcotics, heroin, fentanyl, things like that that we hear about in the news. Most of us, if we were to have a small amount of what individuals on the street are using, we would be asleep. We would not be able to be woken up. We would be down for the count. And individuals that use these substances fairly regularly actually can't get up and do anything until they've had it. So again, common sense doesn't really fit really well with what we know with our own experience. And then vice, you know, vice versa with stimulants like central nervous um, stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine, those kinds of things, they cause your heart beat faster. They cause you to breathe faster. They ca- cause you to want to do, want to go, want to be energetic. And for most people, with so this area of the brain is it's called the pons. It's your brain stem, and it basically regulates all of your organ functions, like your heartbeat, your breathing. Um, so when individuals use substances, normally alcohol should bring you down, and then stimulants should bring you up. But individuals that have an abnormal response to substances have a huge benefit. I've heard a lot of people who use methamphetamine finally say their first experience with it made them feel like normal for the first time that for most of their life they've been crawling out of their skin and, and feeling like they just don't fit in. And until they've had this substance that's supposed to turn you into a maniac and like be out of control, finally gets them comfortable enough to sit down and relax for a minute. So when we think about you know, those two experiences right there, it really, it really helps some of us to say, well, I really don't know anything about substance use disorders, I guess because that doesn't make any sense to me at all. So this goes into understanding you know, why individuals might make some really poor choices when it comes to substance use. So there's a couple of different things that happen and I've already kind of talked about central. So central nervous stimulants, those are the ones that go up. And then central nervous um, depressants, those are the ones that go down. And those would be, so meth and cocaine. And I guess I'll put caffeine on there too, right? <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> Nicotine, that's another one that is a stimulant. Um, there's, there's a couple other ones, but those are the main forms, right? And then central nervous depressants, you're talking about alcohol, alcohol. Um, Opiates. Mm, I guess benzodiazepines. Um, Marijuana. Marijuana is kind of in its own classification. They consider it a hallucinogen, but Hmm. it really does different things for different people. Interesting. You know, our brain has huge systems in place. So like when a person uses an opiate, it plugs into certain um, nerve endings that are like opiate receptors. Hmm. So like if you're learning about the brain, you'd be like, wait a second, there's opiate receptors in the brain? There's nicotinic receptors in the brain. There's an entire cannabinoid system. So it's almost like, Individuals who know and learn about the brain, learned about the brain through the result of what substances do and where they react in, in the brain. So THC sits in this endocannabinoid system and, and plays a huge role in, in these ones where there's, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala And the amygdala is like a fight or flight center. It's an emotional center in the brain. So individuals that have like poor stress responses as children, they didn't know how to self-soothe, they never learned maybe, their parents didn't teach them. Or, again, with my belief system and my understanding of education, they're born that way. Mm. That part of the brain is just on alert. And I think for... Maybe somewhere along the line, um, evolutionarily, that would, have been a, that would have been a great thing to have if you were one of the watchmen of the village, if you were one of the caretakers and you had to make sure everything was getting done on time and as it should, make sure that the entire community is staying safe. You want to be on alert all the time. But I think in today's society, when we have all the food we need, when most of us have all the shelter that we need, we've got the safety of the public police um, system, we don't, I mean, honestly, we don't really have to be worried about much. Most of us who have stable lives and and happy, healthy homes, there's no reason to be worried. You know, the bills are going to get paid and everything like that. But a lot of people who struggle with stress, anxiety, those kinds of things... When, when they have some first experiences with alcohol, opiates, and benzodiazepines, they're like, huh, that's, that's beautiful. I really like what that's doing for me. I'm not worried about anything anymore. Mm. And I've been worried my whole life. So they're like, wow, that makes sense. I'm going to do that again. Mm. So it stores a really strong memory. It, and then and that memory gets accessed over and over. What did I do last time I got stressed out? What did I do last time I felt like I was crawling out of my skin? Oh yeah, I, I can do that again. And then the response again is identical. It's trustworthy. When you take that substance, it has that effect every single time. People are complicated. (laughs) Even loved ones, family members. We might not know what we get from one day to the next. But that bottle, that pill, same thing every time. So it's almost like a trusted friend. Hmm. It's a counselor. (laughs) Right? It's a therapist. And then on the other side, the central nervous stimulants, I, I, for some reason, really strongly believe... It has a lot more to do with an area of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. So I'm just going to abbreviate. You don't remember much of this. But there's, there's this place that is born within us that has natural drive. Um, you could call it um, biological memory. As a child, when you're, when you're born out of the womb... You have jobs to do already. I can't remember anything before the age of two or three, right? But if you took a baby out of the womb, you cut the cord, clean it up, and you put it on a mother's abdomen, it'll orientate itself and climb to the nipple and feet all by itself. Mm-hmm. You don't got to teach it any of that. And so it, it comes out of the womb with what appears to be knowledge, but it's drive. It's... It's... Um, it's the will to survive. So the ventral tegmental area has this will to survive in it. It has, um, it has thirst. It has hunger. It has fear. It has um, loneliness. It has boredom. So that ventral tegmental area makes us feel and experience all these things, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, if you've ever heard that before. And those are drives. They drive us to go seek um, reconciliation. So when I'm thirsty, I get something to drink. When I'm hungry, I find something to eat. So a lot of us use these terms, but... You could interchange any of these terms with the word craving. Hmm. Okay, so this is something that I try to help other individuals that you know haven't personally experienced substance use disorders under. Try to understand what craving is. Right, right now it's really hard. You guys got to look delicious meatballs and pretzels and hmm. Hmm. and I know there's there's sugar and creamer up there, but right now I'm fasting as part of my Lenten practice hmm. and. Um, I'm craving that. You know, that's part of my craving. But it, to me, I'm pretty good with craving. I've been trying to deal with it the best I can for the last 19 years. I'm in recovery myself, so I understand what craving is. And um, But it's hunger. That's all it is. It's thirst. That's all it is. And I can give into it if I want, if I need. But like... Individuals that don't understand craving, like how could you want to use, how would you want to use a substance like meth when you know that your, your use of meth has led to you being hospitalized, has led to you having your children removed from your home, have led to you maybe even becoming homeless yourself. It doesn't make sense that you'd keep using that substance. But like... Try going a day without eating. Right? If you you could, just, maybe that's not a good idea if you have some history of eating disorders or things like that, but I challenge anyone in the room, try going 12 hours without eating. Just, you can include the eight hours of sleep too. Eight hours of sleep, four hours of being awake, and don't eat anything. (laughs) It's a lot harder than you think if you've never done that. But, so that's, that's kind of just another word for craving. So when individuals who have a genetic predisposition, and I might use that word again, genetic predisposition, you're born with the genes, you're predisposed to this experience, that, you know what? Right now, I don't have to think about what causes this place to get quiet and calm down I don't have to access this memory to find out if I'm hungry what I can use to get rid of that hunger because if you've ever met or talked to anybody with substance use disorders severe and substance use disorders if they're thirsty hungry afraid lonely or bored if they use a substance there less of these things and sometimes none of these things it takes care. <laughs> i throw some air quotes around it. It takes care of all of it. Like that. And, you know, on the outside looking in, we're like, well, it doesn't really take care of it, Chuck. That's, that's not taking care of it. But inside, inside here, it's taking care of it. So it's almost, again, this is, this is the area of the brain that's in charge of survival. And I don't know, does my body know it's surviving or does my mind know it's surviving? And if my mind's not functioning, if my mind is functioning abnormally, I'll say it that way, if my brain is functioning abnormally and I use a substance and my brain tells me that that substance is what is keeping me alive, it's taking care of all of my needs, I'm going to just keep using that substance. You can try and talk me out of it, but every time I use it, it works. It works. I'll throw some air quotes around it again. So the most insidious part about this disease is being a brain disease is it controls our choice. It controls our behavior. This is what this is what makes me pick this up, pull this off, and draw a picture. But like today, this prefrontal cortex is what helps me to I guess decide on what I talk about next. This is the part of the brain that's in charge of decisions, right? It's in charge of insight, judgment, right? And um, this part of the brain develops over the course of our early life. So from the age of zero to the age of about 25, it, it starts as a child and then by the time, I'll say, women around the age of 23 and men around the age of 25, women mature faster than men. <laughs> women make better, mature choices before men do. But if, if this period of development of the prefrontal cortex is, is interrupted by regular or continuous substance use, this part of the brain doesn't develop as as it should have. It stops developing. And, and, and so you stop getting better at making decisions, you stop be- getting better at using insider judgment, and it sometimes stalls out at that age. So if you started using substances at 13, 14, 15, you could be a 40-year-old man who's acting like a kid. Who's acting like an adolescent who's throwing a temper tantrum if they don't get what they want hmm. yelling screaming hitting kicking it sounds almost like an not an adolescent even it almost sounds like a toddler or a child and the reality is is not only does this stop developing but it also regresses so this becomes a real challenge for individuals in early and ongoing recovery Because even if they're a 45-year-old man, after about, I'd say after about three months, after about three months after the individual stops using substances, that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, starts to come back, starts to kind of work, start making better choices, like that craving. (laughs) Oh, I'm hungry right now. I need to get some meth, because when I used meth, I wasn't... Oh, wait a second. That's right. Math gets me locked up. <laughs> Maybe I'll go get a cheeseburger. Right? So that's, that's that decision. In, and it takes a while. It's not like, duh, don't use meth, man. It's ruined your life. It's like, wait a second. Let me think about this. And that's three months. After a year of abstinence, this individual's brain prefrontal cortex will start functioning at the same level it did when when they started using, huh. right? So even after a year of being sober or abstinent, clean, whatever language you guys are familiar with, that individual's gonna be, at best, their best that they ever were. So I don't really have really good information on our research on what that looks like moving forward. But there are some indicators that suggest that after about five years of abstinence, after about five years of recovery, recovery rates finally stabilize. Three months, six months, a year, 18 months, even three years, recovery rates are still not that impressive at all. It isn't truly until after about five years. So that helps me to believe that there's some... Well, they call it neuroplasticity big word for the brain being able to develop past adolescence mm. past early adulthood so maybe after five years of this forty-year-old staying sober he can start acting like a twenty-year-old mm. <laughs> And 20-year-olds, you know, they get up, they go to work, they, they go to their classes, they go to college. 20-year-olds can function on their own, they can live on their own, they can meet the love of their lives, whatever it is. At 20 years old, you got half a chance, right? I always say that about my son. If my son makes it to 25, he's in the clear. But before that, he, it's a crapshoot. Because <laughs> he's, got, he's got my DNA, Mm. He's got his mother's DNA, and we both have severe and substance use disorders in our genes. So if he does make a decision to use substances, he's going to receive a benefit like he shouldn't because yeah. of that abnormal reaction. Can I
0: ask you a couple of questions? Yeah. Um, so you talked about um, the uh, genetic predisposition of addiction. And uh, you just mentioned, you know, that your child, my children, will have that. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that located somewhere in the brain
1: specifically?
0: And is there knowledge of how that works yet?
1: yeah I actually thought about that yesterday. I was like i should I should try to remember or memorize that it's like they've they've isolated the strand of the part of the DNA that is the addiction gene mm. so maybe that's at some point in time, and I'm not sure if a medical provider would do that today. I know they do a lot of genetic testing to see if we have if we're predisposed to certain um, diseases. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think they identify that one yet because it's not something most people want to know or need to know. I also know, just because we met a couple of weeks ago and talked
0: mm-hmm. about today, that you believe that, um, that addiction or substance use disorder is just largely a genetic predisposition disease. Yeah. So, and I don't want to put, I don't want to put you on a spot because we know this is online forever. So yeah. everybody in the world's going to see it. That's fine. Um, I'm
1: at a church. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we give grace. It'll be forgiven. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I I do want you to I, I talk about that because I I think that is important for yeah. us to kind of wrestle with and know a little bit. Yeah.
1: About. So in my education, early education, what 12, 13 years ago now, uh, in, in university, they're showing me research of these things called the twins studies. So the only way to truly find out the difference between two people is to have a control group. So hmm. the only way to find a control group with humans that have the same DNA is twins, identical twins. So they go out and they search all this information from all these identical twins that they can find and they ask them all these questions. You know, where did you grow up? What state did you grow up in? How tall are you? What color are your eyes? How, what was your socioeconomic status? Did you grow up in a home that was poor or rich? Did you go to church? Um, where, where did you work? And when it was all said and done and they took all this information and synthesized it, they could tell that... People that develop substance use disorders were, how did they say it? They were four times more likely to develop a substance use disorder if they had one parent who had a, a substance use disorder. And if both of the parents had substance use disorder, they were seven times more likely than average to develop a substance use disorder themselves. So we got to find out the averages. So there's a lot of math involved, so follow with me. Over the course of the last five, six decades, we do research on how many people have substance use disorders within our population, and it hovers right around 8 to 9%. It's never been much more, and it's never been much less. So if I round that up to 10, 10% of the population has a substance use disorder. So if you have one parent, you have a 40% chance of developing a substance use disorder yourself. Two parents, a 70% chance of developing a substance use disorder yourself. Mm. And other research went on to suggest that somewhere between 60 to 80% of individuals who have substance use disorders can relate it directly to their genes. 60 to 80%. Now, I've been practicing in the field for 12 years, and I've run thousands and thousands of groups. And I have worked with thousands of people. And every once in a while in a group, I'll ask the group like this size, how many of you have a parent who has a substance use disorder? Most everybody raises their hand. How many of you have both parents? A large majority raise their hands to that one too. And every once in a while, there'll be one person who will be like, nope, nope. I'm like, and I kind of wonder, what are you doing here then? (laughs) How do you have a substance (laughs) use disorder? I'm like, so nobody in your family? He goes, well... You know, I had some aunts and uncles and, and maybe a couple of grandfathers. I'm like, okay, well, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or like, so neither of your parents? No. Uh, did they smoke cigarettes? Yeah. Oh, okay, there it is. Uh, that's as easy as it is. Because they've proven that with mice. You take a group of, let's say, 100 mice. You cut them in half. Here's 50 over here, 50 over here. You give these mice nicotine their whole life and then let them breed and then you just let these ones be okay and then you get rid of the adults and you take their offspring and then you give both groups heroin. This group touches it, samples it, whatever. This group over here just go to town and they never stop. They OD and they die. And that's all because their parents were exposed to nicotine. Huh. So, and it's genes. They, don't, they didn't watch their parents use heroin and learn how to use heroin. They tasted it, and it did something to their brain. So it's wired for it, right? That's so, so
0: interesting. So, so those of us with a substance use disorder, our brain deals with the chemicals differently than those who do not.
1: Differently, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I okay. say abnormally. It, it, it's not a normal reaction. Okay. Um, another... A individual famous guy, Dr. Drew, you guys might know him. He's got some information out there that suggests that it's an evolution, that it's actually a, a good thing. It's, it's, it's interesting how he presents it because he's like, and I think it has more to do with these central nervous stimulant guys <laughs> because he's like, well, when the hijacker's on the plane and they're going to take the plane down and everybody sits in their seats... These guys are the ones that get up and attack. Mm. These ones are the ones that run down the middle and try to barge into the cockpit and take the plane back. Normal people just get their cell phone out. <laughs> yeah, I love you, honey. I might never <laughs> see you again. Sure. And these guys are taking over the world. You know, and and some of the most, well, some of the most successful and famous people that we know out there have s- histories of substance use disorders. You know, George. George W. Bush is an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. goes to AA. He's president of the United States. Elon Musk is a tragically, terribly addicted individual who's ruined many relationships, marriages, but he's also considered one of the richest men in the world. So substance use disorders aren't necessarily a terrible thing, but when it comes to the way that those individuals use substances... It is. It can be terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, we can say it is what it
0: is. We, You know, if you have a substance use disorder, you have an illness that needs to be treated.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't like the idea that it's considered an illness or a disease, but it fits with it because it causes destruction. How can I, how can I say something that doesn't hurt you isn't a disease? But I think, again, it's like the Spider man they say with great res- power comes great responsibility, and, yeah. and I think that's hmm. you know it 's a tool that can be used effectively.
0: Do I remember learning that that um, part of the the brain response to substances is that they stop um, producing some of the the pleasure chemicals themselves that make us feel okay, uh, like serotonin. Um, do substances do that, um, or is that something different that happens with other issues?
1: I think it's not necessarily the substance that does it, but the way that the brain is developed and built. Okay. Um, it, it's really, again, common sense suggests that if you use meth and you really like it, that means that it's producing all these really feel good chemicals. Your reward system's on fire, right? and the reality is that the more research that we do it it's it's almost suggesting the opposite that if you can drink a beer and be oh okay and drink two or three beers and be like mm mm-hmm, and drink a six pack or a 12 pack and then finally be like mm mm-hmm, you're actually needing more of the substance to get there than most people need to get there with one. They're like, one whoa. So they're getting, they're getting a lot, normal people get a lot of it with subst- without, how do I say this? With small amounts of substances. And individuals that often who end up with alcoholism or an alcohol use disorder have an experience, like, I could drink almost a six-pack or more the first time I went out and drank. Like, I could drink most people under the table, and that was just something that I could do. Hmm. Um, So, the brain, the way the brain is to begin with, does that. And then I think through the use of substances, individuals get spoiled or used to, like, meth, man, that gives you a lot of energy, it gives you a lot of... um, interest, like you could do the most stupid, mundane job in the world and just have a great time doing it and feel like you could do it forever. Mm -hmm. And then when you get forced by the jails or the court system or your family to stop using meth, you're like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this any longer. So yeah, we get spoiled
0: by it. So you kind of of already alluded to it, but can you talk a little bit about Um, the understanding that um, it's progressive as well, that it gets worse. Is that something that you've seen or um, how would you describe that from a brain perspective?
1: Yeah, that's challenging because I think, you know, the longer an individual uses substances, it gets worse and worse. Hmm. Like, I don't know how to say this, Like, those individuals that have those abnormal reactions, they enjoy it at first. It it adds to things. You know, it adds to their relationships. It it adds to the fun. They might go out um, jet skiing, right? Jet skiing's fun. And then when I start using this, jet skiing's even more fun. And then pretty soon... Because they're using so much of that, they can't afford the payment on the jet ski or whatever, and the jet ski goes away, so like, now I'm just using the substance to have fun. And that seems, that's like part of the progression, that we have just loss of interest, impaired relationships. Um, so given enough time, an individual who goes untreated, if their substance use goes untreated, will eventually end up, hospitalized, in jail, in prison, in, in, in the grave. Yeah. And that's the progressive nature of the disease. Yeah. Whereas most people who end up with, even the individuals that I work with today that um, have these super severe end spectrum uh, disorders, uh, homeless, severely mentally ill, no family, no relationships, complete and utter destruction, At some point in their life, they were a normal, functioning person just like everybody else. I mean, I'd say that. I was just sharing that with a group today. I mean, I come from a really small town, Pembina, North Dakota. There were 15 people in my graduating class. And out of the 15 people, for sure, 14 of us all drank. And we all drank regularly. Every weekend, bonfires, after the dances, during the dances, right? And there were individuals in my class that drank excessively, like straight shots of Everclear, vodka, just blackout, drunk. And if I'd put any money on it back then with what I know, I'd guessed three or four of those guys were just gonna be dead in their thirties. Severe end alcoholism, that's all there is to it. They're normal people today with families, drinking beer during the Super Bowl. Huh. They don't have alcoholism. So alcohol doesn't cause alcoholism. <laughs> huh. You know, it's, it's a genetic brain disease. Just like type 1 diabetes. Huh. It's a genetic disease. No matter how much crap I eat, no matter how much huh. I don't exercise, I'm never going to develop type 1 diabetes. Because my parents don't have it. Huh. And that's the same thing with with this. I mean, like if a school asked me to come in and do a lecture on substance use disorders and the dangers of drugs and alcohol, I just say, hand out a a questionnaire and ask the students if they have a parent, aunt or uncle or grandparents that have substance use disorder challenges. And if they say no to that, they don't need to come because they can go out this weekend and they can drink. They can smoke a little bit of grass and sow their wild oats. And somewhere in their early 20s, late 20s, they're just going to chill out on it. They're just going to really stop. They're going to slow down. Life's going to change for them. They're going to get families. They're going to oh. get careers. And they're just not going to fit in anymore. Individuals with genetic predispositions don't operate like that. They just keep going and going until they can't really go anymore. Or someone says you're done. We are not going to let you go anymore. And that's really hard to do. So we're going to do some question and answers
0: in just a moment. So I'm going to see if you can answer a couple of these really quick, Mm -hmm. okay? Okay. So you you stop using the substance if you have substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. um, And um, you start off 10 years or 20 years later. And Mm. it seems like... Like you often start back at, or at least get pretty quickly back to where you were. Is that part of the brain? Um, or how does, or don't we know for sure?
1: I mean, I've heard all that and, and I think most people with first-hand experience would, would say that. Not only would we start back out of where we stopped, but we would more than likely start back up as if we had never stopped. Right. So it's almost even worse after we start again than it was when we stopped. Huh. So ah, huh. it's almost like I would I would hypothesize that it's like the brain's just built there already. It's huh. just a t- turnkey operation it's, it's like riding a bike it takes you a long long time and a lot of hard work to get used to it to get on it and to get good at it and to be second nature so you could do other things while you're riding the bike hands free maybe one wheel and then you stop riding a bike for 10 years you just get back on the bike you don't got to learn how to do it anymore so it, 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 the progression is already there I think that might oh, be the only oh, way to explain it alright
0: um, so uh, we will take a few minutes for some questions. Um, we're not going to try to get into a counseling session, um, but if you have questions based upon what, um, what he has shared, uh, what Chuck has shared, or, or just some clarification, um, we would love to hear from a few of you. And if you are watching online, you can write um, on Facebook a uh, question as well, and we'll try to get to it. So here we go. Let's uh, stand up. Let's identify ourselves um, and, uh, and then uh, ask your question.
1: Hi, I'm Misty. Um, so is there any way to stop the cycle other than just not having kids? <laughs> <laughs> not even really it's a good a ba- question. It's, not, it's a great question, and I don't know why we laugh when we hear it, but we do, because it might be a defense mechanism. Um, yes. I, I honestly, from what I know just from simple biology and in courses in high school and in college, that recessive and dominant genes can change. Uh, genes can be turned on and genes can be turned off by behavior in our lifetime. Um, and, and I honestly do believe that with good education you can we can educate our children we can educate our offspring at the potential that they are born with and that is there if they never pick up and use a substance during their lifetime they won't technically they won't have a substance use disorder because you have to use substances will that then allow them when they have children to not pass that gene on because they don't have the gene now? I don't know if it works that quickly. Hmm. But I think that the cycle and, and also culture, like it says 60 to 80% is directly genetic. But also it's, it, maybe it's not the culture. And culture, popular culture, America, right? Fucking Budweiser and whatnot... Um, we're just really predisposed to using substances you know the pharmaceutical industry Mm. pushes it on us and stuff so I think we can through education we can resolve it within the matter of maybe one generation or at least two Mm. Mm. but those individuals have to make good choices on who they decide as a partner too Mm. Mm. (laughs) right Mm. other questions
2: Do you think, as gene altering therapy kind of progresses, that it could help prevent addiction before the child is even born?
1: Boy, I'm not. I'm not really good at that. I mean, I I've, I've thought about different ideas of how that could look. Like they've got like amazing stem cell research, and how you can inject st- stem cells into certain areas of the body, and those stem cells can just start working. Um, hmm. It'd be interesting to see that kind of therapy done with individuals who already have it. Um, Like, again, that amygdala, that area that's somewhat dysfunctional, I'll say, or abnormally functioning. If a person suggests that could put stem cells in there that that are normal functioning, and those stem cells grow and reproduce and cause the amygdala to function normally, then yeah, that person wouldn't really receive a benefit from that central nervous depressant. Because I think that's, that's the tough thing that we don't understand or can't really grasp is the benefit, the benefit. There's such a benefit for those individuals with that substance. Whereas most of us, it's not a benefit. Like if I were to hand out like three shots of vodka to like everybody in here and take one, do research how did that make you feel okay do another one some of you guys are like I don't know I don't want to do another one do it do another one now tell me how you feel be like not good I don't like this I really don't like this alright do your third one Most mostly be like third one no way no thank you and then some a small percent around eight to nine percent of you would say well if they're not gonna have their third can I <laughs> Just to be clear, the percentage might be a little higher in this room. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't bring any vodka with, so we're safe. We're yeah. safe. Okay? Yeah, where do we sign up for that? Right out of the... <laughs> um
0: Okay. Got time for one or two more. There we go.
2: Hi there. Thanks for coming in today. Um, I'm an alcoholic, and I've been sober off of alcohol for 10 years. And I almost congratulations oh, no, 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 no. congratulations <laughs> well wait um <laughs> wait. so i you know it got to the point um fairly quickly for me like i i would have cravings maybe once every three or four years and it would be mild mm-hmm. um but this year i relapsed with thc and mm-hmm. it's been uh an experience to where it i, I was just as powerless as over an alcohol mm-hmm. and the amount that i used was huge in the way that it was affecting me. I know it was different than other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was able to quit for a couple months, and I relapsed. And now I'm kind of in the cycle of trying to, you know, stay away from it and not relapse. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I guess I'm just wondering, I I don't, Dale did say don't ask. (laughs) This isn't a counseling session. Mm -hmm. But if if you just have any tips, or is there something different I could be doing, or um, will my... How long am I gonna to be struggling with this again? Is my is my ten years gonna help or
1: mm-hmm. yeah. you know that those are that's a really Thank good you. question. I think Dale is actually gonna kinda ask a question like that, similar to like how about how about if you have problems with Uh, This substance? Can you use a different substance, or like maybe gambling, or you know, there's a lot of different uh, uh, behavioral addictions out there. I'll say that. Now I'm a substance use disorder, so I didn't necessarily train too well on the other ones. Um, So I didn't ask that question just due to time. But can you answer that then? I mean, are
0: are the is that the same with the brain and for various addictions, or do we not know? or do you you do? Maybe you don't know.
1: You know, for t- at least at least eight to nine years of my practice, it was just abstinence-based. It was all abstinence, abstinence from all substances. And, and it's just eight. There's eight sections of substances, and you have to be abstinent from all of them. And that's the only way that you can be in recovery. And today, I practice more of what would look like a harm reduction model, which suggests that, okay, if you had problems with alcohol, and you can admit that, it's probably good that you make a decision not to use alcohol, um, but like now with weed, and you know how do you know unless you try it? So try it, try it, you know, and and if you don't have problems with it, well then I guess it's not a problem. But if you do have problems with it, then I don't know how many different substances a person has to go through before they realize that just. What it is is, is is that the substance is doing something for us. It, it has, has a benefit. Again, so when I'm working with individuals, counseling and things like that, it's almost like you have to really find out what that benefit is. If you can't find out what that benefit is, you'll never figure this out. Because what you have to find out is what it's doing for you, and then you have to figure out a better way to get that need met. And if you don't figure out a better way to get that need met you're just going to seek out a different substance to do that for you. So what I would suggest is go back to finding out before you started using that what was missing and what you were trying to fulfill by using that. And then you'll get more to the hmm. the answer. Okay. We
0: got more hands here. So let's <laughs> we'll, we'll try to keep going quick here. Back Where are you going to go? Back there. All he right. had his hand up. Hi, I'm Jeff. Um, what about the un, what about the anxiety, depression, PTSD? Um, I work in an area where you know PTSD is you know relevant. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you've got one Vietnam veteran that went and served and had what happened happen, and becomes addicted,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or and then somebody that doesn't. Um, you know, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, which Mm. comes first. Yeah. And how do you address that along with the the treatment itself?
1: Well, the information that we have out there is just good uh, evaluation and diagnosis. Um, It's just like what happened in Vietnam, right? All those boys are over there fighting a war, extreme amount of trauma. Hey, there's some heroin. Let's, Let's use that. It helps me get through this. But when they come back to stateside, These junky heroin addicts over there just drop it. They don't use it anymore. They all still have the trauma. They all still have the experience. It's just that substance really doesn't do it for them. So again, chicken or the egg is your genetic predisposition. I can can almost like with those gentlemen that I went to school with that I was talking about, if I'd have looked at their family history, I would have been concerned at all that they were going to become alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with trauma. I think, unfortunately, sometimes people get information and they start running with it. I don't know if any of you guys have been familiar with or heard the ACEs studies. Mm-hmm. Adverse childhood experience. And they suggest that if you have three or more of these adverse childhood experiences, you're, you're much more at a higher risk of developing a substance use disorder in your lifetime. And I would say that's not causal. It's, it's correlation. Oh. <laughs> Most individuals have, uh, have adverse childhood experiences, grow up in homes with parents who have substance use disorders. That's why there's adverse childhood experiences. And then they go on to develop substance use disorders not because they had adverse childhood experiences, but when they used substances, it did something for them that it doesn't do with normal people. And the, in the research that suggests which comes first, nothing comes first. Depression doesn't lead to, to substance use disorder, but if, if you're listening to what I'm saying today, anxiety leads to a benefit and if you have anxiety, you're more likely to benefit. I don't know if that's correlation or causation because the reality is as a psychiatrist or a doctor is going to prescribe this for this and some of those individuals will just take their colonopin as directed and some of them will take them Excessively, and then, when they run out of the prescription and can't get a refill, we'll go find something on the street. Hmm. And the difference between those two individuals 100%, 100% genetic predisposition to substance use disorder.
0: So, we're, we're going to actually wrap up. So, um, we've uh, gone over time. Um, which doesn't surprise me. Um, I knew this would be very informative. Um, How about we have um, Chuck come back sometime, um, and we'll continue the conversation. So um, if he's willing, um, if he's willing... so you know, the people who have come and shared with us, they do it voluntarily, um, and uh, we, we sure appreciate uh, this time. This has been um, very informative, and I, I want you to know um, that if you or somebody you know is struggling with a substance use disorder, that uh, that there is a lot of help, and we didn't even get into that, but... Um, you know, Southeast Human Services, other programs of treatment. Um, Lighthouse Church mm-hmm. is a program, is a church with um, a variety of, of anonymous programs as well as um, faith-based programs to help people um, who are struggling with substance use disorder. And um, just reach out for some for some help if uh, you are in that situation. Um, I do wanna just quickly announce, um, do we have a slide for our next guest? Um, Our next guest is going to be Yvette um, Anderson, who works for the state of North Dakota. Uh, specifically as a clinical director for free through recovery program that our church works with. And she's going to be here and we're going to talk. We kind of dealt with this right at the end about trauma-informed care Mm -hmm. and what trauma does for us and how how we can interact with one another in regards to trauma. So that will be April 4th. Um, 5.30. And I want to thank everybody for being here. I want to say God bless you. Um, Thank you for your time. And um, I hope that uh, this was beneficial. And I hope you come back in April. So thank you.